You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness to us and for your word. We're grateful for your steadfast love, um, which never ends, never ceases, but is um, given to us day after day in a thousand different ways. And we pray as we turn to your word now that you would help us um, to declare and celebrate um, and be oriented by your steadfast love. That's a work of grace, and so we ask for that grace in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're in Psalm 36, uh, and so read that passage of scripture with me. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So this psalm uh, breaks down into four pretty clear parts. And so this sermon is also gonna break down into four very clear parts. And I've got a word for each one of those parts. Uh, Those words are oracle, Declaration, celebration, request. Oracle, declaration, celebration, request. Let's begin with that oracle. Uh, That phrase at the very beginning of the psalm, uh, transgression speaks to the wicked, uh, is literally an oracle of transgression to the wicked. That's the, the literal phrase, and so they, the translators kind of reworked that because that's a little awkward phrase. But it's the type of phrase that shows up elsewhere, uh, and it'll say something like this, an oracle of the Lord to David. So oracle of the Lord to David means the Lord spoke to David. Here it's an oracle of transgression to the wicked. So this is what uh, a man's sin is saying to him. That's what David is going to describe in these first few verses, is what, what a man's own sin is testifying to him. So in the same way that God speaks to the prophets in their hearts, transgression or rebellion speaks to the wicked in their hearts. In other words, rebellion, in this sense, is their God. And this rebellion pervades their whole existence. So when, you, when we read through this passage and we see um, it speaks deep in the heart, It extends to the eyes, uh, verse one and verse two. Then it moves to uh, a man's mouth. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And then it moves to his actions. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So from deep in the heart, to the eyes, to the words, to the actions, 
rebellion pervades and consumes the wicked. So what does this mean? Well, um, there's no fear of God before his eyes, but instead he flatters himself in his eyes. So that, think about that, this, this image of the eyes and what, what the eyes are suggesting. It's highlighting this aspect of attention, like what, what our minds and our hearts and our eyes are focused on. So if, if God is before your eyes, then you'll fear him, and that fear of God will keep you from temptation. Sin won't have the same pull because you have the fear of God before your eyes. But if there's no fear of God before your eyes, something else will take God's place. Something will be before your eyes. And in this Psalm, it's he flatters himself in his own eyes. So it's himself. It's the self that takes the place of God in the eyes of the wicked. So if, if you're flattering yourself in your own eyes, if self becomes the God that you fear and respect and honor, then you'll flatter yourself that the living God won't find out your sin or, or that he won't hate your sin or that sin uh, is not that big of a deal. And there's a bit of a paradox here, right? Because uh, it's sort of like the more that self becomes your God, the, the more that rebellion pervades your life or the bigger that sin gets in your life, then in this weird way, the smaller sin gets in your eyes. So like the bigger sin gets in your life, the more it pervades, the more it extends to more and more of your life, the smaller it gets in your eyes. Sin becomes a light thing, a small thing, no big deal. You don't sweat it because you think, God's not gonna see, God's not gonna care. He's not gonna hate it, he's not gonna condemn it. And so this is what David is, he reflects on the wicked. He says, this is what's happened to them. Their own self has supplanted God before their eyes. And as self got big and sin got bigger and pervaded, God got small. And sin also gets small in our eyes so that we don't think it's a big deal. But it's not just about the eyes, it's about words. The wicked here in verse three uses the words of his mouth to stir up trouble and to lie. He uses words to provoke others, to harm others, to instigate trouble, to, to deceive others. And then not just his words, but it goes on to describe his actions. His actions we're told are not wise, but instead implied foolish. He doesn't do what is good, but what is evil. So from his heart to his eyes, from his eyes to his words and from his words to his deeds, sin, and by here, here sin, the transgression that's speaking to his heart, sin is really the self dominating, right? Flattering himself in his own eyes. The self that's dominating and animating and pervading everything about this man. In fact, uh, David highlights that his devotion to sin, his God, an oracle of transgression speaking to him, the devotion to sin is constant. He, he accents the constant and steady choices of the wicked. Like when, when you see he plots trouble while on his bed, it's implying that like the, the daytime trouble, each day has enough trouble of its own, right? There's that Jesus, Jesus says that each day has enough trouble of his own. Um, the wicked says, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I got to plot more evil while I'm going to sleep. The wicked man is the sort of man who is plotting evil on his bed, who is lying awake thinking of how to get what he covets, how to indulge his lusts, how to get back at those whom he thinks has wronged him. He, he daydreams and fantasizes about stirring up trouble, about taking advantage of other people, 
Or perhaps, I mean, if, if we wanna make it relevant for our present moment as a country, there are people right now who are plotting on their beds and simply waiting for a tragedy to strike, a horrible situation, a shooting, a death, whatever, are waiting for those flashpoints so that they can take advantage of them and burn down some buildings or deface some property or smash and grab some stuff. But they're plotting, it takes effort, their mental attention is devoted to when is my next opportunity uh, to sin, to listen to my master, to indulge myself. And so in Paul's words, this is how Paul would describe this sort of person, the sort of person who plots trouble while on his bed. Paul, Paul would say, he is making provision for his flesh to gratify his desires. That's Paul in Romans uh, 14. Uh, his desires, the wicked's desires, his lust, his envy, his malice, his pride, these are basically running his life and he is trying to make provision. He's planning out, when can I sin next? When can I do, when can I indulge next? He sets himself in a way, that's what David says, he sets himself in a way that is not good. He's looking for trouble. He's not trying to avoid trouble. He doesn't pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Lead, me, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Instead, this man, this wicked man is praying, lead me, O self, into, into temptation, right? Uh, deliver me up to evil. I am setting myself in the way of evil. I don't wanna be delivered from it. I want to be set in the way of it. And quite simply, David says, he doesn't reject evil. And there's an implication for us here as we think about our own lives. Sin, rebellion, transgression is the sort of thing that must be resisted and rejected always or it will spread. It cannot be nursed, it cannot be coddled. It must be killed when it's still in those early stages, like in, in those fantasizing, plotting times on, on the bed when you're just dreaming about the evil. That's the time when it needs to die because if it doesn't die in the imagination, if it doesn't die when you're planning and plotting, then it will eventually spread and it will take root in your heart because you're keeping it before your eyes and it will spread to what you say and what you speak and you will speak trouble and deceit and then it will come out in your life. You will cease to do good, but instead you will do evil and act foolishly. So our daily choices, our nightly choices, this is a big one. Think about the number of times that you've gone to bed uh, stewing in your own bitterness or your own lust or your own greed and your covetousness. Why can't I have the grabbiness that takes hold of our hearts? How many times have you gone to bed in that state, right? Paul says in the book of Ephesians, in your, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger, okay? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I don't think he meant, but it's okay to let it go down on your lusts, or it's okay to let it go down on your envy, or it's okay to let it go down on your covetousness. I don't think Paul meant, oh, anger's the only danger on your, yeah, when you're going to sleep. Paul meant sin, if, if, it go, if you go to bed with it, you will wake up with it, and you will find that night after night it has grown until it pervades from your heart to your eyes, to your mouth, to your life. So we must actively reject evil, even in the small ways, otherwise it will grow. It will speak to us in our hearts. It will magnify self before our eyes and flatter us 
and it will consume and overflow from our mouths and into our actions. That's the first section. That's the oracle of transgression. But then, this is what's so great about this psalm. David's gonna come back to the wicked at the very end. But in the middle, he doesn't stick with the wicked. He thinks this is what the wicked are like. But then he's gonna put something else before his eyes. He's not gonna flatter himself in his own eyes. He's not gonna um, reject the fear of God before his eyes. He's gonna try to encourage and awaken a healthy and appropriate fear of God, and he does so in a surprising way. It's not by reflecting on the fear of God itself. Instead, for the next three sections, David is gonna meditate on the steadfast love of the Lord. You can see it, right? Look in verse five. I want you to see how each section of these next three sections leads this way. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven, verse five. Verse seven, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Verse 10, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. So over the next three sections, David keeps returning to this theme of the steadfast love, the chesed in Hebrew. It's the covenant love, the long-suffering, persistent, never-ending, unstoppable love of God. That's what David is gonna set before his eyes. So let's walk through these and see the declaration, the celebration, and the request. Declaration, this, this is what David does in, this, in verses five and six. He declares the fact of God's glorious attributes in creation, okay? So there's a comparison that he's gonna be doing, right? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, and then he's gonna, uh, other related attributes, the faithfulness of God extends to the clouds, his righteousness is like the mountains of God, and his judgments are like the great deep, and then man and beast you save. And so what David is reflecting on, it seems to me, is creation. And notice how he's, he's moving from top to bottom. So he begins with the heavens, okay? So this is like the, the stars at night um, are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. No, uh, stars at night are big and bright. Um, the sun as it moves across the sky. So the heavens, that's the highest. That's the farthest thing that we can see, the highest thing that we can see. And then David moves down from there to the clouds, which sort of move over the face of the heavens. And they cover up the stars and they bring the rain. And then he moves down from the clouds to the mountains of God, to the mountains, the highest mountains that he knows. He's thinking about these mountains. So he moves from the heavens uh, to the clouds, from the clouds to the mountains, and then from the mountains he goes to the deeps. So from the heights to the depths, David is saying, we see divine attributes. We see love, steadfast love. We see faithfulness. We see righteousness. And we see the judgments of God. So maybe, what does he mean? I, there's a lot of things he could be intending by these comparisons, okay? We could spend time unpacking. It would be a, a fruitful thing for us to meditate. But for right now, I just wanna highlight one thing for each of those comparisons. God's steadfast love extends to the heavens because the heavens, from our vantage point, are unchanging. The stars, right? We don't, we, we're so impoverished as modern people because of light pollution. We don't get to see it. But this is why we go out uh, to the Montana um, plains so that we can see some stars. That's why we get out to the cabin so we can look up and see. The stars, they move as a sheet. Right? They move together and they're unchanging. There's a regularity and a consistency. The sun comes up every day very predictably. He goes down every night just as predictably. The moon waxes and wanes. Those planets that move across move with regular motions. And so there's an, a steadiness. And so David looks at the heavens and says, the steadfast love of the Lord is even up there keeping the heavens in motion. His faithfulness goes to the clouds. I suspect David is thinking here about rain. That's the first thing I thought of. That what do the clouds do? Well, they cover from the sun, but they also, the clouds bring the rain. And God causes the rain to regularly 
water. And so how do we see the faithfulness of God, especially in an uh, agrarian society that leans heavily uh, on the, the harvest season and it really leans on that? How, how do we see the faithfulness of God? Because every spring those rains come and every summer those rains come so that in the, in the fall when harvest is here, we've got food to eat. And so we see the faithfulness of God coming from those clouds. And we see his righteousness, his righteousness like the mountains. It's stable, it's firm, it's majestic like mountains. His judgments are unfathomable like the great deeps. You think of uh, Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. So the same way that you can't trace out the oceans, the oceans are this unfathomable, the depths of them, the great deeps, they're unfathomable. Even now in the 21st century, like that's the part of planet Earth that we still know so little about because we can't get down there. And so as a, it's a great picture, it's a great picture of the unsearchable and unfathomable depths of the divine wisdom. And so the point here in this, cel in this celebration is that natural grandeur, like heavens and clouds and mountains and oceans, natural grandeur is a pointer to divine grandeur. Like the created reality is a pointer to the God who made it. Like you could just think about this, okay? I don't know where you are right now. Um, I'm recording this on Friday afternoon. And so you could walk outside, right? I can walk outside right now. You could do the same thing wherever you are. And you could look around just for a minute and just take a snapshot of that moment. And what you would see is you'd see the wind blowing through the trees. You could look on the ground, you'd see some ants coming up out of a crack in the sidewalk. You might see a squirrel, that's what I see at my house, squirrels or chipmunks uh, gathering up their acorns and burying them in the ground. Um, you could hear the birds chirping in the trees and you could stop, if you just think about just in that one moment in your front yard, all of the natural grandeur that is at work. Like, and, and God is in all of it. And then you start to multiply that, right? This, this awe, this wonder begins to arise when you begin to think like, this is just one yard, one little yard on one little street, in one town, in one state, in America, on one afternoon. That's all this is. And yet this, this, this scenario, the, the level of activity, the level of life that's happening right here in my yard is being multiplied millions and billions and trillions of times throughout this world, and then you haven't even gotten started because then you can go macroscopic and you can look up at the heavens, or you can go microscopic and you can get down to those atoms and electrons and quarks and whatever else the scientists tell us is down there. And the point is, David doesn't have access to all of that, but he's got access to enough to know, man, the attributes of God, his faithfulness, his love, are revealed in all of these things. In all of these things, God is present. And so we feel the awe and wonder as God governs the world, and especially, he highlights here, for the benefit of life. Man and beasts you save. God has built the world for life. And so we see in the second section, the declaration of God's attributes in creation. And then from that declaration, we move one next thing to verse seven to eight, or seven to nine, where we find a celebration of the value of God's attributes to his covenant people. Okay, and I say that because I think five and six is really accenting creation, whereas verse seven shifts. Um, the, the man and beast you save implies this is natural creation, this is providential care, God governance of all of reality. But then in verse seven, all of a sudden we're talking about how the sons of Adam, the children of mankind, it's literally the sons of Adam, take refuge 
not just get the benefits of the rain, but they take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They're seeking salvation in, and protection from God. They feast on the abundance of your house. What is God's house? God's house is the temple or the tabernacle. It's where God dwells. And so we're in a, in a covenant context now where God's house is abundantly overflowing. And again, look at verse eight. You give them drink from the river of your delights. It's not just natural care. This isn't just drink from the river uh, like the Mississippi River or the St. Croix River. This is the river of divine delights. Um, God here is the source and the origin of life, both natural, that was verses five and six, and spiritual. With you is the fountain of life. And not only of life, but of light. In your light do we see light. And that's both natural light, like the stars or the sun, and it's also spiritual light, which illumines our souls. And so in this, it's important to get that what God is offering to his people is protection. They seek refuge under his wings and he covers them uh, in his shade so that enemies can't get at them. But he doesn't just protect them, he also feeds them and he satisfies them. He satisfies their hunger with the abundance of his house. He satisfies their thirst, and this is amazing, with the river of his delights. Like whose joy does God give to us? It's his joy. He satisfies us with his own satisfaction. So the, the self-satisfaction of God is good news for us because he satisfies us with it. And so in this next section, this precious, this is, this is what David says. He looks at that steadfast love that extends to the heavens. It's in nature, it's in creation. And then he comes back and he says, and it's precious. It's not just awesome and awe-inspiring and infinite out there. It's precious to me because it's why I can seek refuge in him. It's why I can be satisfied in him. It's why I have life in my soul. It's why I have light in my soul. God's love is a precious thing worth celebrating which then brings us then to the last section here, the request, okay? So notice, your steadfast Lord extends to the heavens. That's a declaration, it's just a fact. Uh, how precious is your steadfast love, O God? That's a celebration, it's a, it's, a, it's a celebration of value. This is how much it's worth, that's value language, it's precious. So a declaration of fact, followed by a celebration of value, which then turns to a request for more. This is the amazing thing. The request for more. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. To those who know you. To your righteousness, those same attributes that showed up earlier, to the upright of heart. And so David's prayer is I'm reflecting, I'm, I'm putting the steadfast love of God, all of his attributes before my eyes. I'm not, I'm, gonna ha I'm not gonna put myself before my eyes. I'm gonna put the steadfast love of the Lord before my eyes and I'm gonna think about it. I'm gonna reflect on it, how high it goes, how deep it goes. I'm gonna reflect, I'm gonna declare that. And then I'm gonna value that and treasure that. And I'm gonna be satisfied in the abundance of his house and drink from the river of his delights. And then I'm gonna come back to God and I'm gonna say, do it again. Give me more. I need more. I'm an empty bucket. You fill me up and it, it just runs out. I need new mercies every single day. And so Lord, don't stop with the steadfast love. Don't let it just be in nature and don't let it just be in my past. Continue it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you. 
and who are putting you before their eyes. And what this leads to for David, the, the confidence as he had been reflecting on the wicked and all of the plotting that they'd been doing, plotting on their beds, thinking of the trouble they're gonna cause, no fear of God, not worried that they're gonna get found out, not worried that they're gonna be punished. David knows that's a danger and a threat. Then he turns his attention to the steadfast love and he declares it, he celebrates it, he asks for more, and then we can see the confidence he has that God will answer because he says, don't let the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. You're gonna keep me. Those plots that are, that are happening, Lord, don't let them come upon me. And then verse 12, there the evildoers lie fallen. He can see it. Having put the steadfast love of God before his eyes, he can see with the eyes of the heart, he can see the destruction and the fall of the wicked. There they lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And I think that last verse, I think we're meant to, I'm gonna draw out an implication. It's, it's an implication that comes clear uh, in our New Testament. But the, the, the notion that the evildoers lie fallen they're thrust down, they can't get back up, implies, I think, that David thinks, but I will. I, I, I will. If I fall, if I'm thrust down, if I die, I'm not gonna stay dead. I'm gonna rise. And so when I, when I was reading this, uh, coincidentally in my Bible reading plan um, this morning, I read the book of Ephesians. And I had this in my head uh, as I've been preparing for this sermon, and I, and I was uh, working through Ephesians, listening to Ephesians uh, on my Bible app, and came across Ephesians chapter five, and I just want you to hear, if you hear the echoes or the connections or the same themes, I don't know that Paul had this in mind, had Psalm 36 in mind, but they're coming from the same place, the same reservoir of God's truth. So here's what Paul says. In this passage in, in uh, Ephesians five, Paul is talking about the sexually immoral and impurity and the covetousness um, and how that shouldn't be named among God's saints. So remember, fight sin, resist it. And when it's little, resist it at every level. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. These are out of place. Let, instead, let there be thanksgiving. And he says, for you are sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, or who's covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, so those sins will keep you from the kingdom. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the sons of disobedience are gonna get the wrath of God, and they're not gonna see it coming. They're gonna, they flatter themselves in their own eyes. They're not gonna see it coming. They're gonna think God's not gonna get us. And, and Paul says, don't be deceived. They're deceived, you don't be deceived. Don't have the self for your eyes. Okay, now verse seven. Therefore, don't be partners with them. So David is looking at the wicked. This is how they're living. And he says, but I'm gonna direct my attention. I'm not gonna be a partner with that. For at one time, you were darkness. This is the thing that, that Paul accents in Ephesians here. You were like that. You were like that. You were like those wicked with transgression speaking in the heart, with no fear of God before your eyes. You were like that. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret, plotting on their beds. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. In your light we see light. That's Psalm 36. That's, I, that jumped out at me. In your light we see light. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, where does Paul go? It says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. In other words, right? 
the wicked fall unable to rise, okay, unable to rise. And all of us, that's where we start, that's us. That's human beings in our fallen humanity and that sin can grow and spread and become more dominant in our lives and we're unable to rise. But then, Paul utters this word, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Why will Christ do that? Well, because he's the creator. He's the word who is in the beginning with God and who is God. And without him, through him, all things were made. He made everything, the heavens, to the clouds, to the mountains, to the deeps. They were made through Jesus. And then Gospel of John again, in him was life, with you is the fountain of life. And this life was the light of men. In your light, we see light. And again, in Gospel of John, John says, to as many as received him who believed in his name. In other words, to those who sought refuge beneath the shadow of his wings, he gave the right to become children of God, sons of God, not sons of Adam. The, children, the sons of Adam can seek refuge in, God, in, in the shadow of God's wings and they can become not just sons of Adam, but sons of God, brothers of Jesus. So this is what Psalm 36 does for us. It shows us a picture of what we're like in our natural state flattering ourselves, putting ourselves first, sin growing, working from our eyes to our mouths to our deeds. And then it says, there's another way to live. You can put something else before your eyes. You can put the steadfast, unchanging love of God before your eyes and you can declare it and you can celebrate it and you can beg God for more of it because of Jesus.